Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hey folks, and welcome to Chewing the Fat. I'm Leland Whitehouse from the Yale Sustainable Food Project, and today I'm talking to Dr. Daphne Miller, uh, who has made a life out of exploring the border between modern medicine and the natural world, and uh, it sounds like pushing against those borders. She's a family physician and associate professor at UC San Francisco uh, and author of two books, Pharmacology with an F, about uh, learning how um, farms can instruct us as far as our health system and being a better doctor, and The Jungle Effect about diets and lifestyles that are keeping the poor native populations around the world relatively free of the chronic diseases uh, we're having trouble with around here. She founded Whole Family MD, which is San Francisco's first integrative uh, care practice. And thanks so much for coming in, Daphne. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, I read that you're credited with setting in motion the idea of a nature prescription. And uh, I'm wondering what that is and how I might get one. Well, I I would love to take full credit for it, but it's actually an idea that a a number of us have been working on. Um, But it really uh, started um, from this very basic concept that we have this great untapped public health resource, which is our public lands, our uh, city parks and parklets and Uh, state parks and national parks, and how could we start to use them to be healthier as a population? It turns out that it's really just a small percentage of the population that does use them, and they use them very consistently, but there's huge chunks of us that never access public lands. So it was brainstorming both with uh, park rangers and custodians of parks and my colleagues in medicine and realizing that one way that we could start to get this message out was to literally give out park prescriptions, uh, which look very much like a prescription for a blood pressure medicine or an antibiotic, but they really are a local park that you can go to and we give them a trail to do and how many times a week and so on. Uh, and it's actually something that is uh, it's making inroads in various parts of the country and in different forms, but this idea of park prescription. And it, it, it captures what I believe in, which is really that medicine should be without walls and that we need to start to look at all these great resources out there for how to stay healthy. I guess along those lines, I heard a really cool talk you gave at Google about uh, this book, most recent book, Pharmacology, um, and you spoke about this new invention where you there's like a computer chip and a seed and a little bit of soil and miraculously it turns into a plant at some point and how excited the inventors were about uh, like opening up gardening to everybody um, and you know you sounded skeptical could you talk just a little bit about how that idea struck you and and where it fits into your thinking about medicine along the lines of, of uh, opening things up well it was just fascinating for me because uh, the inventors of this what they call they're calling it the the computer I think it was plant in a box or the computer plant or something like that <laughs> but the idea was literally that you take uh, a, a, a little seedling for a plant and stick it in this computerized box and you can grow the seedling with by adding a solution that has some nutrients in it. And uh, for me, it really exemplified this mechanistic way of thinking 
that we have in both medicine and in conventional agriculture, where we really think that we can reduce things down to their to the to the 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 most minute constituent parts. You know, is there an actual computer chip plus uh, a little bag of nutrients that will grow our food for us? I mean, the same way as within medicine, we wonder whether there's you know a, a strand of DNA that we can alter that will you know cure cancer or cure obesity or something. And uh, what I've learned um, by doing this exploration and by spending time working with sustainable farmers is that by and large, the lessons aren't ones that can be reduced down to one minute solution. In fact, they're very holistic and very complex in that really you have to look at a whole system. Um, To grow nutritional food and to do it in a in a way that is sustainable, you have to know about all the variables, the soil, the microbes, the roots of the plants, the seeds, the weather conditions, the way that you're going to harvest, the way you're going to treat the soil, and so on. And in fact, as a family doctor, to help people stay healthy, it's once again looking at their whole ecology and not just trying to reduce it down to one gene or one hormone or one neurotransmitter. Uh, And I know like the idea of treating uh, problems and bodies as much more complicated systems isn't, wasn't uh, at all new to you working on this book, Pharmacology, but you spent a lot of time on a specific farm that uh, a lot of the material in the book draws from. Could you just talk a little bit about that farm and what that was like? Yeah, well, actually, I spent time on six different farms. Um, and each chapter has lessons that come from each farm. And they were as varied as a beef farmer and an egg farmer and a biodynamic vegetable farmer and an herb farmer. A, a, you know, huge range of products that these farms were growing. But what they all had in common was that they were using an ecological model, this regenerative full cycle model where they really were trying to keep all the inputs on the farm and and not using a lot of external inputs. So um, uh, not using uh, lots of hormones or chemicals or pesticides. And uh, the farmer that I spent time with in the, I think you're referring to the first chapter, uh, which is in this biodynamic farm. Yeah, Eric had actually started off uh, farming in what would be much more akin to the computer chip model that we just talked <laughs> about, and that he was very interested in testing his soil and then getting the reports back from the labs and replacing his soil with minerals that he purchased outside the farm in order to bring it to its optimal state of health. Um, and he did this for a number of seasons. Uh, he, he started farming in the, in the early 90s, and he did this test and replace system for a number of seasons, but was feeling like it wasn't really getting him anywhere. I mean, he was continuing to do these soil tests, and they weren't improving. And so that is when he switched over to a more holistic model where he uh, started to farm with animals and started to do intercropping and uh, used uh, um, uh, cover on his crops so that, you know, the ground was never bare and started to really conserve water and do all these things that are much more associated with sustainable farming. And as a result, the billions of unpaid workers under his topsoil, the worms and the microbes, began to thrive. And as a result, his soil 
tests really normalized and his fruits and vegetables thrived as well. Uh, and I was listening to Eric's story as I was working on his farm, and I realized that in my medical practice, I, you know, I've, I very much have the tendency to use that same kind of test and replace model, uh, where you, you know, take samples from your patients, you send them to a lab, and whatever's missing, you put it back in them. And there's a role for that, but by and large, a lot of the supplements we use and even the pharmaceuticals we use to sort of rebalance things have, have limited benefit. And, and so I, I asked myself, what happens if I actually plug my patients into this regenerative ecological model? Will they get better health than through a test and replace type system? And that led me on a whole exploration of that very question. Um, and so there are, there are these really interesting, uh, parallels, sort of metaphorical parallels between the way where the way you, um, would regenerate soil and the way you could treat a human body. But I have heard you talk a little bit, um, and read a little bit about the actual sort of continuous arc from the actual soil to the actual human body. And that, um, that has fallen apart more than, than it ought to have. Could you talk? Absolutely. You know, it's funny because we all are very comfortable with this idea of food as medicine now. And I feel in a way that's a misrepresentation of what really goes on because it really is farm as medicine or soil as medicine. When you really look at where the healing qualities from our food come from, they come from the choices we make in terms of how to treat the soil. And so one very direct example is that we now understand that the more micro life in the soil, the more nutrients a plant will have and that there's a direct correlation. So as you get um, a higher density of, of bacteria and fungi, you get higher, higher um, concentration of nutrients. Um, and that, that bacteria and fungi life is directly related to how you farm. And ecological farming produces a lot more of it than conventional farming. And that stands to reason, right? Because in conventional farming, you're actually using a lot of applications on the soil that kill microbes, things like pesticides. You know, They don't, don't just kill the big pests above right. the ground. They, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they kill the micro life underground as well. Um, and they also, like glyphosate, which is a very commonly used pesticide, actually locks up nutrients within the soil so that the roots of the plants can't even get at it. Uh, and so that's actually uh, something that was just covered today in the New York Times. Um, <laughs> but uh, beyond the what, what I call farm as vitamin, there is very much this idea of farm as immune booster, because what we're discovering is that the DNA information in the soil within those microbes actually gets transferred to the DNA of the microbes that exist within us, within our microbiome. There really is this game of past the gene that's going on all the time between us and the places where our food is grown. And um, this has been shown in the positive side. For example, there was this fascinating study that uh, showed uh, that an enzyme uh, which exists in a bacteria that lives on seaweed and this enzyme is especially good at digesting seaweed. So it's an ocean-dwelling bacteria. They found the same enzyme in the microbiome of cultures that eat a lot of seaweed, like Asia, people from Japan, people from the Philippines. 
And the thinking goes that the bacterium hitchhiked on the seaweed and then transferred this specific seaweed digesting enzyme to the microbiome of folks that are eating lots of seaweed. The end result is that cultures exposed to this sea bacterium are better themselves at digesting seaweed, people from these cultures. So we are constantly getting inputs from these environments where our food is grown that are actually affecting the way we process foods, affecting our metabolism, um, and uh, affecting our health. On the negative side, there's studies showing that when the soil is treated with antibiotics and pesticides, that it can actually be passing on codons for antibiotic resistance to the bacteria that lives within us. So mm -hmm. we can take a, a perfectly healthy, beneficial bug that's a resident in our intestine and turn it into a superbug just by exposing it to foods that are grown within poor soil. Huh. The and the, so there's this cool. Um, I don't know if it's attention or not. Between some of the science is really cutting edge and the new stuff we're just now finding out about microbiomes, um, and it seems like, in many ways, it's validating sort of ancient wisdom, the stuff we've been doing all along. How in talking to your patients or in in putting together um, treatments or in, just in your thinking about medicine, where is the balance for you between this sort of ancient wisdom stuff and the really cutting edge stuff? That's a wonderful question, and I think to expand on that a little bit, um, it's it's not just um, wisdom and cutting-edge technology, but it's also this tension between micro and macro. Hmm. You know, whole systems, so looking at these problems from an ecological standpoint, which really is a whole system standpoint, and then DNA, you know, on the right. other end, or, you know, different, you know, microbial life, or these the rhizosphere, which is this tiny little thing. And I, that's something that we're really... It's a way of thinking that we're really ill-suited for mm -hmm. in our modern mindset yeah. is this micro-macro or ancient modern and how to pull it together. And I am not going <coughs> to even pretend to um, have codified it or have come up with a system, like the Miller system of right. thinking. <laughs> um, for me, this is all just an exploration. And what I am trying to do is crack open at least clinical medicine and say, look, let, let's let's have these two minds. Let's have the micro-macro mind. Let's have the ancient modern mind um, and and see if there's a way that we can hold these, these many thoughts at once. Um, and perhaps um, at times they might battle each other a little bit. But in the end, you're absolutely right. They're synergistic. And the patterns from each either in the micro level or the macro level, you know, repeat each other on each other. Um, and also, there is this, this rule that keeps on coming to the surface for me, which is what's good for the farm or good for the ecology is good for us. And that's something we actually, you know, often forget. I mean, I'll give you a great example. I spent time on these two egg farms that were owned by the same farmer. And he had started off with a really conventional egg farm, you know, 15,000 hens shoved in a, each hen house. And, you know, their tips of their beaks are taken off so they can't peck each other. And they have 
they do have access to this scrap of dirt outside the hen house so that they can call it free range. In fact, they feed those hens organic mash, so they call it free range organic. That's your free range organic. But you can imagine 15,000 hens shoved, you know, in a barn. It's just, it's your worst nightmare. And then across the road, for both ethical and financial reasons, he's converting over to a pasture system which is 5,000 hens to each house, and they each have like an acre of land. Each house has an acre of land and this beautiful pasture that the, the hens themselves fertilize and peck worms from and get most of their nutrients from, and that's the pastured farm. And um, you look at these two farming systems, and you, you, know, you only have to experience them to sort of understand the the difference from a from a sort of a a, um, a welfare uh, a livestock welfare standpoint, but also just you know if you humanize it and say which would I rather spend my life in you know it's sort of easy you know it's the country club versus the prison, but then you look at the products from these two systems and start to measure it on a very on a very reductionist way start to compare things like beta carotene and zeaxanthin and um, you know folate and all these nutrients you find that in fact the pastured hens are producing you know two to three times the concentration of that DHA which is an omega-3 fat they have eight times the amount of the of the free range, you know, the the, the hell the hell hands, right, right, right. <laughs> and uh, um, so the, you you suddenly realize, oh yeah, what's good for the farm is good for the egg is good for us, you know, it all marches out, you know, and I found that story over and over again. It's crazy that we've talked ourselves out of that it's a very intuitive line of thinking that like good at every moment winds up good at the end, right? The um, so one of the things. Uh, I've spent a fair amount of time on around commercial farms, and I'm from Ohio, where everything's done huge scale. Um, and one of the, these like the great critiques of this whole, um, or at least oft leveled critiques of the sustainable food movement is like, how are you going to feed billions of people with tiny farms? And I imagine um, some of the same critiques are leveled against how are you going to treat all these diseases with um, thinking about diet or whatever. You know how. Um, how receptive do you find um, sort of the lay people you're talking to and how receptive is the medical community so far to you know this new way of thinking about health? Well, first of all, in terms of you know which way to feed the world, I feel like I always in the end it ends up being a you know a match of my data versus your data, right. you know, and that really what it is is there's two camps that are producing data, both of whom are incredibly convinced by what they've produced, right. and there is one camp that is you know definitively showing that it's small scale, very much tailored to that culture, you know starting to grow fruits and vegetables that both work with that ecosystem and with that, you know, those cultural preferences is really the way to go. And then on the other side, you know, you have, um, you know, large organizations who are saying, no, it's, you know, it's GMO and, you know, monocropping and just huge systems of agriculture, of conventional agriculture that are going to feed the world. Um, I, um, I don't pretend personally to have the answer, but I will tell you that I've spent a fair amount of time working and traveling overseas, especially for my last book, The Jungle Effect. And wherever I saw healthy communities, 
they also had healthy systems of local agriculture across the board. Hmm. So um, I, you know, it. it right. You there, don't have the was, report, but there's the. Right. <laughs> I don't have the report, but that's what I saw. But there are actually large multinational reports that are out there, and I'm happy to link this podcast to some of them that um, have shown that it, you know where where you get agronomists and scientists from all over the world, and they're just as convinced that small scale sustainable agriculture is going to work um, as you know the ones who are a little bit more vocal. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I do feel like there are absolutely two sides to the story. And what I've experienced personally supports more of the small-scale approach. Yeah. And are you, do you meet similar uh, resistance as far as a doctor who's talking about treating, you know, they seem like uh, um, big medical companies and Cargill sort, sort of qualify in the same camp in my head. Do you – are you – getting resistance for Ill within absolutely. the medical community absolutely and i think you know part of it is whenever you start to use the word holistic or you know complexity systems or um then all of a sudden uh, you know people shut down because mm-hmm. you want it's much easier to, to talk about things that are very mechanistic where there is a drug or a test or something that will give you a very immediate and satisfying solution. And to start to think of our own health as an ecosystem is something that's very unsettling because, first of all, as a physician, it means that you have to start to be really smart about it. You can't, you can't just follow an algorithm. Mm-hmm. There's just all these factors, both in terms of our internal health and the way we ex- relate to our external environment, that come together to determine what our final you know, state of health is. And the same goes for farming. I mean, the reason that conventional agriculture is so appealing is because anybody can do it. I mean, anybody can plow up their soil till it's you know, like dust and then add a ton of additives to it and then put an engineered seed in there that will grow in a sandbox, you know. Any, I mean, any untrained person can do that. But to farm in a truly ecological and sustainable way requires really smart people, as smart a person as as a doctor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I've got to tell you that the smartest farmers that I've worked with match the smartest physicians that I've worked with, you know, really ability by ability in terms of their understanding of science in terms of their understand their ability to think across systems and in, in terms of their ability to be creative in terms of their ability to have an open heart you know all of these things um you mentioned uh your uh your first book or at least an earlier book the jungle effect um, which sounds like such a cool project to be working on anyway, to be t- skipping all over the world to all these awesome communities. Um, who's really got it figured out? You saw so many people all over the world. Were there any that really stick with you as having um, been like really exemplary, healthy, happy eaters and walkers and livers? Well, I, I, was, I was truly all over the world from the Tarahumara Indians in Copper Canyon to, you know, um, communities in northern Iceland, you know, right, so right. it really, and everything in between. I spent time in Okinawa uh, working actually in the hospitals there, but spent time also with sort of the long-lived 
folks uh, on Okinawa and spent time on Crete, uh, in, in Cameroon, in West Africa. And so there were many examples of, um, uh, of communities where, who, who were not succumbing to a lot of the modern chronic diseases that we suffer here in the U.S. and yet had enough technology so they weren't necessarily getting the things that used to kill us 100 mm-hmm. years ago, like, you know, the snake bites and the, you know, the uh, uh, um, attacks from uh, other creatures and overwhelming infection. Or, right. Uh, so they really are at the, kind of the sweet spot. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but within each one of these journeys, I also saw the the next generation who in most instances are were very attracted to modern food and a modern lifestyle, mm-hmm. which includes being a lot more sedentary and taking up smoking and things like right. that. And so there was this paradox in each place that I visited where the parents are outliving the kids or at least having um, a better quality of health than mm. the children. And I saw that in Okinawa where I, you know, these 90 to 100-year-old folks have children who are in stroke hospitals, you know, (laughs) while they're still out there in the community. And I saw that in Copper Canyon where a lot of the um, older um, people were living down in the canyons and still having this very traditional lifestyle, traditional language. They still walk these enormous distances to, you know, to go to their friends' houses and they farm in these little farmlets. And yet their children who are living in Creel on the top of the canyon are starting to get diabetes and heart disease. So I saw this paradox everywhere, and it was, it, it's quite depressing. And it also very much reinforces the idea that this is not genetics. You know, right. It's not like we've been dealt a bad gene that's you know, causing this surge in obesity or right. diabetes like or Twinkies heart disease. and cigarettes. Pro- it really yeah. is lifestyle. And within one generation, you can either, you know, you, you, you can do a lot of damage. <laughs> sure. Um, so to, I guess to change tax a little bit, um, you, your sort of on paper resume looks very, like this very straight ahead overachiever, like Ivy League uh, undergrad and then med school and then private practice in California. But you're, you've wound up in such an interesting, um, so successfully hopped off of the mainline uh, sort of standard procedure, which um, for a senior in college watching all of his friends go to uh, Wall Street and, and consulting firms uh, is like really inspiring and cool. Um, and I guess I want it like... Could you pinpoint a couple of the moments where you felt yourself making a left turn uh, away from where I imagine many other kids at Harvard Medical School were headed? Or Yeah, well, I think I probably made a, a left turn the minute I started on the wards and was really confronted with what ails us and realized that all these great things that I was learning at Harvard <laughs> you know, in terms of my toolbox as a physician mm-hmm. really wasn't going to help most of them, you know, because what you see are people who are there because they, their diets have not served them well, their, yeah. you know, their social connections haven't, their, you know, the, their lifestyle, you know, and so on. And those are things that in medical school you're actually fairly ill-equipped to deal yeah. with. 
And uh, for me, I was especially fascinated by food because it is this medicine that we all seem willing to take at least three times a day, you know? <laughs> so I was like, how, how can I begin to at least work with whole foods and make a difference with my patients? And um, it turns out that if you're asking that question from the medical vantage point, it's really hard to gather the skills you need. Right. I mean, you get virtually no nutrition training in medical school. And then most of the ways that you can go learn about it afterwards are a little fringy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, I really constructed my own education. I, I did spend some time with, uh, at the University of Arizona in their program in integrative medicine. But a lot of my training was with everything from very academic, conventional nutritionists to home cooks, right. you know, from, you know, traditional, um, you know, women, you know, in the kitchens in Okinawa, you know, to to nutrition science. Um, but I'm still embarrassed to say that even with this interest in nutrition, it really took me about a decade of doing this work to start to get interested in the places where our food is grown. <laughs> and so you know, it was this slow progression for me from going from you know, drugs to food to soil <laughs> and you know, starting to, to, to explore deeper and deeper um, into, that, into that piece. Uh, and I think you know, at each step of the way, what really has pushed me onward is what will what will make a difference for my patients? You know, what are the what do I need to know, and what are the questions I need to ask that will truly make a difference for my patients' health? Not not just what are the skills I've been given and how can I apply them, but you know, I'm willing to accept that what I know is maybe not so useful, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that I need to go out there and learn more. And so it has turned me into a lifelong learner. Not a bad deal as, as ways to spend a life go, I think. Um, and I was instructed to, before uh, we finished, to ask you about the clock gene, which okay. is supposed to be so cool. Uh, well, that's an interesting uh, <laughs> sort of a flip. I, I, yeah. Actually, I was at the Yale farm before I came over here, and I have to say that it's a lovely setup. And that uh, students at Yale are so lucky to have that as a laboratory to learn from. And I hope that they all do a class there so that they can um, begin to incorporate that into whatever else they're doing in their lives. Because really connecting to the soil and understanding that piece of the cycle is, is an important, it, it grounds all of us, forgive the pun. Uh, but I was there giving a talk, and we were talking a little bit about this idea of micro and macro. And um, I was talking about circadian rhythms and how we know that the rhythms and the seasons and, and light to dark is so essential in growing, and that it makes a tremendous difference in the nutrient levels in the plants and when they can be harvested and so on. It also makes a huge difference for animals. We know that light and dark has everything to do with when chickens are going to lay eggs and, you know, all of these things. And I said, what's interesting is that within our own bodies, it turns out that we actually have these genes that control our internal circadian clock and that are just starting to be identified. And they call them the clock genes. And the 
the majority of folks have one type of clock gene, but they're, they're finding these variants on that clock gene, which actually give you different types of sleep-wake cycles and ones that might be associated with maybe a slower metabolism and maybe a lower mood or things like that. And what researchers are finding, and a lot of this research actually came out of Spain, there's a researcher, Garoudé, who's published a bunch of this recently, that if you shift some of this, so get people who have later clock genes, who tend to get up later and eat later and so on, and they also tend to be people who sometimes have trouble with their metabolism, trouble losing weight. If you shift them so that they get more connected to light and nature earlier in the day, if you feed them a breakfast, a big breakfast rather than a big dinner, you know, really start to shift their circadian rhythms, you can actually turn off these genes a little bit and get them to metabolize their food better and so on. So it's, it's interesting. We're understanding a little bit how to manipulate our own circadian rhythms for, for better health. Um, by linking us a little bit more up to the natural rhythms in the world, the light and dark in the world. So cool. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on Chewing the Fat today. Uh, it's been great. We hope you come back. I was a total pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, we'll see you next time on Chewing the Fat. <laughs> thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.